The content here is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice or be used to evaluate any investment or security and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com forward slash disclosures. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Nihar Bopa. Our guest today is Seema Ambley, a partner focused on leading early-stage FinTech investments at Andreessen Horowitz, where she primarily focuses on B2B FinTech, such as payments, CFO tools, and vertical software globally. She currently serves on the boards of Movement and Stoic. And prior to joining Andreessen Horowitz in 2019, Seema had been investing in FinTech for over a decade. Most recently, she was at Goldman Sachs Investment Partners, and had worked at Leapfrog Investments, Ultima Capital Partners, and Blackstone. Seema also worked at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau while in law school. Hey, Seema. Welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. Where are you calling in from today? Hey, thanks for having me. I'm, uh, I'm in rainy San Francisco today. Awesome. We're thrilled to have you here. Yeah. So for our listeners, can we start with your background and how you've come to be in FinTech? Sure, 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 sure. Um, so, you know, I've Fintech, the journey into fintech has sort of been a, a series of things that converged for me over over the last decade, um, but but almost almost randomly. Um, so backing up, I uh, studied you know economics and government in college. Um, I ended up writing my my economics thesis on on households in South Africa um, and measuring you know how they respond to income and labor shocks. One of the natural conclusions from that work was actually that they they needed insurance, uh, and at that time I had no idea what fintech was, um, and 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 didn't didn't know that this would sort of lead me to the, the next thing. But I'll bridge that into the next thing. You know, when I took my my first job, that's when it sort of fintech started tying together. So I ended up falling into fintech because of two reasons. After that, one was following a great person, um, which I, I'm a strong believer of in, in career decisions in general. Um, I work for a partner at Blackstone um, who is leading the firm's strategic investing as part of his job, but he was an amazing mentor from the start. And he was also really strategic and that drew me in. And the second thing is um, I graduated from college during the global financial crisis. And there were a lot of interesting things happening at Blackstone and in the financial services world that were really interesting, complicated, and you know, I was interested in understanding and sort of diving into the complexity. And so, you know, I started looking at financial services. It was sort of becoming a thing. FinTech wasn't really a thing yet, but this set of, you know, this first job I had actually just snowballed for me. Um, you know, every job after that, uh, which ended up being called FinTech, you know, they'd say, oh, you invested in in financial services or you know how to look at balance sheets. Like, why don't you help us look at these investments in payments or insurance? Uh, you know, I helped launch an insurance company in in Africa, and they had seen that I'd invested in an insurance business in um, in the U.S. in one of my private equity jobs prior. Or I worked at the CFPB during law school, and I um, had looked at uh, a couple of businesses that had been impacted by Durban um, as you know Durban was unfolding. You know, four or five years before that, so there things sort of started to string together. That's how I ended up in fintech. I think one thing I'll say about working in private equity. Um, early on is uh, I think it also really influenced kind of how I think about businesses and how I also invest. And so, you know, like I, I at that time, you know, I liked, 
I, I was interested in investing in or working in something that was fast paced where I'd be learning a lot, but I quickly learned a, I, you know, I'd be looking at these old, slow bureaucratic payment processors or insurance companies. And, you know, I couldn't help but think, you know, there's gotta be a better way to be doing this with tech and in a, in a faster pace. Um, but I did have, a you know, a, a, an appreciation for sort of how businesses fundamentally make money. And that's probably why I like, you know, a lot of the boring business areas, maybe like tax and billing and compliance, payment processing. Cause I actually think, you know, if you apply the lens of like what's, uh, you know, tech driven to these older industries, you can get something pretty cool. But uh, yeah, net net, I think like I ended up in fintech and investing because there was a lot of things that sort of all converge, um, you know, based on an early set of experiences and and it all made sense over time. Appreciate you sharing that, Seema, but we forgot one important point. How did you end up at A16Z? After a set of uh, fintech experiences, I wanted to to work with uh, great people focused on early stage fintech. Uh, so I joined here in 2019, um, and you know, been focused on all things early stage, uh, primarily B two B fintech, and doing so globally. Um, and yeah, very focused on finding the uh, most ambitious founders wherever they are, and been excited to work with them. There are a couple of things I want to unpack there. You made a point earlier about how your thesis on South African households was an early motivation towards fintech. I'm curious, though, how do you think about business models focused on the bottom of the pyramid consumer segments? Noble causes, yes, but often hard to monetize. How do you think about this as a venture investor? Yeah, totally. I think there are a couple of ways to think about it. Um, let me offer you a few few thoughts. One is I think you know it can work, especially if you're getting to enough customers, especially in a market that maybe doesn't have, uh, you know, at the time when I was investing in, in South Africa, there was very limited uh, low, you know, mobile insurance available. So if you can get to enough scale, I think that's one thing that can drive it to work. Two, you're able to get to enough share of wallet for a customer. So you're able to sell them additional products. And from a, you know, metrics point of view, your ARPU um, can be strong enough. And then three, I think you can also get this mix of customers over time so you're not necessarily just bottom of the pyramid focused um, and you're getting subsidized. Perhaps the lower uh, income consumers are being subsidized by like higher ARPU consumers that are further up the, the income ladder. And it's, I think all of these reasons, any of those could be, could be true, but I think all these things are sort of things you would think about, you know, early on as you're, you're looking at an investment. You know, just to just to press a little bit on that point that you made, you have models such as mobile wallets in emerging markets, like India as an example, where you know they've targeted both bottom of the pyramid segments and upper tier segments of the market with the promise of scale eventually playing out despite those raised within margins. Where does that eventuality or that promise that eventually you'll make money, where does that sit in your comfort zone? Or perhaps is that why you've stayed away from investing in some of these regions altogether? Yeah. Um I think. I think we've seen it play out in a few emerging markets already, um, where you see a mass market product that, you know, take Newbank, for example, um, that actually is able to win large market share early on and and really bring a bunch of people online or you know, from a make them banked. And so we're seeing a few of these models sort of emerge. And so I, I definitely think it's possible. I, I just think, you know, back to the point around multiple levers to pull, it's there are different 
you know, companies that will do it in different ways. Um, but I, I, I think it's, I think it's definitely possible. I think, you know, going back to my original way of, of thinking from private equity, it's just, you know, having a plan for like how you make the business model work in the long run, or at least a strong hypothesis around that, I think can really, you know, set, set you up for success as a, as a founder in the long run. You know, to that end, you mentioned how your experiences in private equity at Blackstone specifically help you think about some of the future monetization paths of the companies you you evaluate. You don't have to name names, but do you have any examples of deals that you've passed on despite the rest of the market getting really excited about them because you just couldn't quite see how margins would play out over time? Yeah. Um, and I think you early stage investing, right? A lot of times the margins are never going to be what they will be at scale. So you sort of have to think about how the the founder thinks about margins or or how this business what this business could look like and it's not just margins but i think it's a general sense of like okay you know if it's a low acv business without a distribution insight like how do you think that'll work in the long run or like if it's a lending business um you know understanding that if it's it's going to you know probably ultimately trade as a, a multiple of book all of these are like again just inputs and in how you think about investing Really, it's like, you know, it comes back though, I think, to a lot of like, do you have a product insight? Do you have a distribution insight? And, you know, in the long run, do you think there there is an ability to like layer in additional products, you know, make that ACV work? Do you have or is there a way um, you know, is lending just a portion of the business over overall? Um, and 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 like again, like dreaming the dream of what it could look like in the long run. I'm glad you brought up specialty lending and lending more broadly because I found that there tend to be two schools of thought here for specialty lending businesses. You know, on one hand, to your point, they end up trading at a multiple of book value, which oftentimes in venture terms reverts to something quite conservative. While on the other hand, specialty lending businesses can be far more resilient as long as you know how to run a balance sheet business effectively. So as an early stage investor, how do you think about this? Is it really just a question then of getting in at a low enough entry price to seek those quote unquote venture returns? Yeah, totally. And and I think, you know, you end up in dangerous territory where you just if you just throw out entire business models um without peeling it back and kind of understanding the nuance behind it. And so, you know, I I think that like, you know, a balance sheet business like you know, if you look at some of the most profitable uh, or biggest profit pools if you will in in in, you know, the S&P 500, lending is definitely up there. I do think the lens that we look at it, or at least I do, is I think there, as a venture investor, there needs to be leverage from technology. And then the second piece is also, which is related, is you'd have to think about businesses from you know a capital efficiency scale perspective, not just entry price. And so again, thinking about like long term, the venture returns is also you know this this ability to you know leverage technology for scale over the uh, over the life of the business. And and think about also like you know comparing it to you know opportunity cost of a a more tech driven business if you will. Appreciate it, Seema. I, I, I want to switch gears a little bit to your background again. Um, what were you like growing up, and have some of those experiences or quirks perhaps helped you as a venture investor? Yeah, totally. Um, so I mean, to set the context, I really didn't know anything about business or fintech uh, or investing growing up. I mean, both my parents are doctors, and I think one thing I'm super grateful for is they they let me explore whatever I thought was interesting and and you know uh, let me let me chart my own path. Two things I would say about you know who I was as a kid. Um, I was a huge nerd. I I read a ton, um, and I think that's played a huge impact in in why I actually I really love what I do. 
Um, I loved learning new things. I asked a lot of questions. I was I had like a, a nickname in our, our local language because I asked too many questions. Um, I uh, I spent a lot of time with my mom at the public library and at Borders. Um, and embarrassingly, I actually really loved write, reading the encyclopedia. Uh, why does that all matter? Um, I actually think this job, um, you're constantly learning. I think the intellectual curiosity is what's like driven a lot of, you know, whether I, you know, what I spend more time on in fintech, what I end up writing about. And honestly, the journey with a lot of the founders, one of the fun things has just been able to like, you know, the ability to sit and sort of dive in and see see the future um, and, and really be a student of it. And so so that's that's one thing I would I would say from from uh, from my childhood. I think the second thing um, is, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I was a big student government junkie, um, which may seem completely unrelated to investing. But I think the the main reason I used to do that, you know, from like the second grade was, you know, I, I cared a lot about change and how do we do things better and how do we, uh, how do we seek a better future and all that stuff? Um, because that was my main avenue for doing so as a, as a, as, you know, a, a grade school student. But I think in venture too, I think this, my mindset is very much around like, you know, even when I was at private equity, it was like, you know, what, what, well, how can we use technology or do, you know, leverage what we have to, to see a better, a better version of like, the processes that operate around us. Uh, for me, you know, I think it's like, you know, I'll talk, you know, I'm happy to talk more about payments, but like, I think one of the reasons is you see it every day and you're like writing, you're writing checks 10 or 15 years ago and you're like, man, there's gotta be a better way to do this. Um, and so I think that like bias towards change as also sort of uh, comes from, from how I, I was as a kid. I'm curious though, it seems like there's an obvious track record of, of curiosity and agency especially when you were growing up. But I am curious around how, as a venture investor, you often have to fight the urge to you know, let the founder figure it out and just guide the founder to make those decisions themselves. Uh, or do you feel like you don't have to fight that urge? I think um, we invest, and I certainly invest in founders who I think are awesome and we are a sounding board on their journey. And so, you know, we're we're there to to provide feedback, you know, talk it out. But, um, you know, I think the exciting part about investing is, is, is finding people whose, whose journey you want to be on and, uh, and support them through that. So in your experiences along the way, I'm sure you've come across thousands of opinions, some that are complete garbage, some that have really resonated with you. I want to know more about the ones that you've held on to. Yeah, sure. Um, I think one of them, one of the the credos I'd say I live by is that that life is long and 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 do things that you find interesting uh, rather than you know say you know say that there's a path that you need to be on. You know, I originally when I moved from New York to the Bay Area, uh, all my peers at Blackstone were staying in New York finance, uh, but I knew there was something really interesting happening in technology. You know, I quit my job in private equity uh, to move to a fintech fund in South Africa. I knew nobody in South Africa at that time, and I was helping build a life insurance company in 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 Africa then. And and it, it serendipitously ended up being related to that thesis I wrote, but uh, I thought of it as you know this is an interesting life experience. It's all kind of related to my the same core interest in in what turned out to be fintech, you know, and I sort of followed my nose as I as as uh, as I went, and so I think you know I do really really prescribe to this uh, idea of you know following what you think is interesting and and then trying to like kind of see the returns that sort of compound on an experience and 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 the uh, the learnings you've had in the past. The second thing I would say 
is uh, I, I, you know, I love to say you're, you're the average of the five people you surround yourself with um, or whatever the, the quote is. But, um, you know, most of my career choices, both joining and leaving places have been guided by that philosophy. And so for me, you know, like, where do I feel like I'm surrounded by, you know, the most ambitious, challenging people, both professionally and personally, and are, you know, pushing you to learn and grow in the ways that you want to and not feeling, you know, complacent or, or um, you know, like you're not being the best version of yourself. And then the third thing I'd say is uh, if you don't ask, you don't get. And, you know, this goes probably goes back to the question asking I was referring to earlier as a kid, but like, you know, you can't be afraid to to ask the questions. And, and you know, I, I feel like a lot of times in venture, you know, you were mentioning it's sometimes there are hype cycles and you have to be able, you know, you have to, you have to ask the, the hard questions. Um, I think that's often what separates out uh, the really strong investors. On that note, I wanted to actually just bring the conversation back to fintech and take you up on your offer to talk about payments. What's the deal with B2B payments? Everybody's talking about it. What's the hype? Help us understand a little bit more about that space. Yes, um, B two B payments, uh, you know, is is very hot. But I, I do think that there there's something there. I I personally love B two B payments, and you know, for for me, it was uh, you know I was mentioning you know writing checks. I think the the one if I had to point to one experience, it was um, when you know my landlord back in New York in my early twenties only took check, and I was like, why is this? Um, but I think everyone is suddenly realizing, uh, you know, a lot of businesses are only using checks and Excel spreadsheets and people to manage complexity. And like, there's so much opportunity for automation in, you know, better integrations, ability to accept more payment methods. So this is B2B payments. It is literally just the process of a business paying another uh, business. The reason why it seems complicated or vague, or there's a lot of things attributed to it, there are many ways to break it down. So obviously not all businesses are the same, right? You know, there's a freelancer and then there's a Fortune 500 company. Both are technically businesses and have different needs. Uh, You have different payment methods. So you have, you know, ACH, wires, cards, and, you know, you have subscription payments and you have one-time payments. And then you've got everything that wraps the payments process. So that's everything on onboarding, fraud, compliance, FX, treasury management, it even bleeds into cash flow and accounting. And so there's a lot of B2B payments is a lot of things as a result. The way I like to think about it is probably I'll like split it into different segments of the market. So, you know, SMB freelancers, like smaller, the smaller in the market needs more depth around vertical needs. They want things to be rolled together as opposed to just uh, more narrow solutions. Enterprise, obviously, they're going to be able to string together a, num- a number of products. Uh, they have many more people to manage it. They have you know, engineers that can bring things together. And they want deeper product sets, obviously, than, than a smaller business. So that's one way to look at it. And then the other piece is also like application versus infrastructure. So a lot of the functionality around B2B payments is you know, initiating payments, tracking, managing payments, there's both the application layer that like, you know, an enterprise or an SMB or anyone in between might be buying. But then, you know, there's the whole process of connecting to Rails, issuing cards, the best providers, uh, all of that uh, is the infrastructure piece that also needs to be coupled with the, you know, the UI and the, uh, the workflow tools that sit at the application side. So B2B payments is a lot of things, uh, but a lot of things is good. I think that means there's a lot of different businesses to be built in this space. I think um, people see the ability to build a new payments network, et cetera. And that's, I think that's that's potentially super exciting. I think it's it's also hard. I'm happy to get into to why it's been hard in general. But uh, I, I do think that there's something super excited here. It's, it's exciting here. And um, it's not just hype. 
Well, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, break that chain of thought. So please do tell us why it's hard. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's hard businesses. Um, they're, it's hard to get people to switch payment methods. Um, especially if you're creating a point of failure around them being able to like get paid. And I think typically, uh, the buyer is also typically a little more conservative and you want someone who's conservative to be, you know, your CFO or your head of finance, your controller. Right. And so, you have you know this first issue around just switching is harder, the buyer being more conservative. The flip side, obviously, is like the products end up being super sticky once they are inbuilt. And then I think the other thing is we've probably seen uh, a lot of the newer payment products, you know, trying to replace someone like a bill.com. They're not like truly 10x better to the customer in the way that matters. You know, it's good enough, let's say. And then the second thing is going back to the stickiness to take bill.com, right? Like if you've already entered all of your payment details with all of your vendors and customers in there, like re-entering that is a giant pain. So you're like, ah, okay, maybe this product isn't perfect, but it's it's good enough. So I think I think I would probably summarize just it's it, um, there's a lot of opportunity. I think you really have to figure out a the right wedge, b building trust with um, you know the the buyer, um, and then and then c like you know how do you kind of build that up over time. You know, speaking about businesses that need to be built, let's say you couldn't choose B2B payments, but if you were a founder today, what would you be spending time on? Yeah, um, I think I think there's a lot of exciting things to build. Um, I think I start off with the general principle is like, you know, I general I like to find tailwinds or trends that are shifting to sort of ride off of and that can really sort of propel a business. And then I think the second thing I would say is you want to build where you have an earned secret or differentiated insight into the market. So what is it that you uniquely know uh, and that you're positioned to, to navigate, you have buyer empathy for, et cetera. A couple areas that I think are, are really interesting, you know, we've spent time in this uh, thesis of uh, default global. I've written a lot about the CFO stack. Um, to me, I think, for example, I think KYB is really interesting, especially on a cross-border basis. Um, I think there's a lot in sort of the business onboarding, identity, uh, credit scoring side, and so I, I think there's a lot to a lot to be built out there. Um, but yeah, I think it's you know seeing these these trends of um, of, of tide shifting um, and uh, and and getting on board. So now we know what you're excited about in fintech. We also know where you'd want to build if you went down the founder path. That said, I've been wanting to ask you, what are some of your fintech hot takes today? Totally. Um, one. I'd say uh, a lot of fintech doesn't really look like fintech. Um, so, you know, we it's it's often software, it's a B2B marketplace. It's what I like to think of as like powered by fintech. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think fintech is a lot broader than 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 what first comes to mind, which may be, you know, just the payment side or just insurance or just a bank. That's probably one. Uh, two is uh, boring is better. I like to say so. You know, maybe coming back to to my private equity early early start. You know, I love things like payroll or tax or billing. You know, these seemingly what seem boring, but I actually think are really interesting. Are you know, if you find massive uh, you know pain points, but then also like tailwinds around why are things changing? There's some really interesting things to be built. You know, whether it's new regulation, new industries like crypto, you know, new business models like gig marketplaces, new cross-border needs. Those are all sort of new combining sort of these seemingly boring areas with new tailwinds, and and there's something really interesting to be built. 
the other two things I would mention is like I I truly think it's never too early to start thinking about business model. I think you know you definitely need product focused founders, um, but I think a lot of the best founders also have a pretty strong hypothesis of like how they're actually going to turn it into a business early on, especially in fintech. The last thing I'll say is like I think lending itself isn't uh, isn't terrible. Um, I think the issue you know I think going back to where we were talking about earlier, it's you know there's a lot of there's a lot of puts and takes to a lending business and what makes it interesting to invest in, um, you know, where you prevent yourself from being commoditized, how you're leveraging tech, uh, how much of the business is actually lending and whether you're lead, you know, you're lend, leading with software versus leading with lending. I think those are all, you know, parts uh, of, of the decision-making framework around, you know, whether, whether lending uh, is interesting, but to like for vertical SaaS, for example, lending can be a, a really interesting revenue stream, um, but you've already led with a software piece um, and it's just a part of the overall uh, overall business. Couldn't agree with you more on the last point. Now, final question for all the aspiring venture investors listening to the podcast today. What do you look for in young investors you choose to work with? For you, what are table stakes, but what are things that you're willing to coach for? Yeah, my personal take is I don't think you can you can coach hustle and motivation. I think that's that's absolutely table stakes. I think, you know, I think all things equal, you're slightly you're better off taking someone who's slightly less experienced, but will learn really quickly over someone who has deep experience in something. And then, you know, I think it's fairly obvious when you're interviewing people and you can hear that they're like they've had the hustle, but on a second point, they're like actually interested in it. You can hear it in their voice. They are like pulling you through, you know, interview process or conversation rather than you needing to push them. And I, I think that's one of those tells that uh, just comes through in a conversation. I think, you know, I think FinTech knowledge, like, you know, we've all learned it over time. We're all still learning. I think that's something you can coach for, but even in your conversations, you know, between one conversation and the next, you know, someone who may not know about FinTech, but like, digs into something you've said and comes back with questions like that's an amazing sign that like they're going to be able to get up this you know up to speed very quickly and and you know be a a great teammate well Seema, this has been great really glad we did this and hope to have you on again thank you thanks for having me this is so fun thank you for listening to today's episode of the warden fintech podcast if you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and give us a follow on social media. We appreciate the support and hope that you'll continue to spread the word to more listeners. If you'd like to keep up with all the content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Medium at Warden Fintech, where you'll be able to find articles, interviews, and much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, thank you to our editor, Rafael Osteria, and until next time, this is your host, Nihar Boba.